Iube Domine benedicere, nos comprole pia benedicat Virgo Maria. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, Queen of all hearts. Pray for us. Saint Dominic. Pray for us. Saint Francis. Pray for us. Saint Louis Marie de Montfort. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Latin invocation with which I began is literally, Grant, O Lord, a blessing. May the Virgin Mary bless us with her loving child. That expression, nos comprole pia benedicat virgo Maria, is a very old expression. In fact, it is the original and traditional conclusion of the rosary from St. Dominic. May the Virgin Mary bless us with her loving child. Um, and for hundreds and hundreds of years in the Catholic tradition, that was normally the way, especially in religious communities, when the rosary was prayed, that was the way it was concluded. And um, including those of you who are familiar with the writings of St. Louis-Marie de Montfort, a better edition of his writings in translation will include that at the end of his method of saying the rosary, because it is one of the things he made it a point to, to include. And so again, nos cum prole pia benedicat virgo Maria. May the Virgin Mary bless us with her loving child. It is a good invocation, a beautiful invocation for us who are particularly reflecting upon that ancient title of Our Lady, that name of Mary, cause of our joy. We spent some time last evening considering man's need for joy. The fact that in our original creation, where is Adam settled but paradise? which is, by definition, the place of continual, thorough, and abiding joyfulness. But that as a result of man surrendering to the voice of the tempter and believing his false and seductive promises, joy was lost, and mankind inherits sorrow. And having lost the original joyfulness, having lost original virtue, having lost communion with God and turned his back, man no longer can find the fullness of joy that he longs for by himself. And if the Lord chooses to leave man in his guilt, a joyless life is the lot of man a life that comes to an end in the grave when he who was made from the dust and dirt of the earth crumbles into that selfsame dust and dirt. Fortunately for us, that is not the outcome of the story. But again, one of the important elements of what we discussed last night was this aspect of Adam and Eve refusing to be reconciled. The Lord offers them the chance to repent and say they are sorry. And both of them, while they each admit the wrong they did, will not accept responsibility 
will not apologize, will not change, will not be reconciled. And in so doing, they revealed themselves incapable, even when joy is held out to them, of returning to it. And Adam, as he spoke to the Lord, ended up blaming the Lord for his misery. He doesn't just blame Eve. The woman that you gave to me, she gave me the apple, she gave me the fruit, and that's why we're here. And so it is that the Lord's answer to Adam is to give another woman, a woman who will be completely opposed to the serpent, a woman as holy as the serpent is wicked, a woman as filled with grace as the serpent is filled with venom, a woman given over to truth and not deceit, a woman who offers and calls us to the fruit of life, not the fruit of death. And it is this woman, the fruit of whose womb, what an interesting expression, isn't it? The fruit of thy womb. And what does Adam say? The woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate it. And so now I must die. And the Lord says, I will give you a woman, and from her you will receive the fruit of life. How beautiful. How beautiful this way that the Lord insists joyfulness, life, and goodness will be ours by means of not just a woman, but the woman the woman that he gives us. Note how specific that is? The Lord doesn't say, I will put enmity between you and some woman who might emerge. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He speaks with an incredible specificity here. The woman, the one through whom life and victory will come into the world. This is a note that sounds repeatedly through the scriptures. As the Lord announces salvation, there is repeatedly the note of the woman. Let's pause on that for a second. Because it's one thing to say we need to know the joy that is ours so that we seek the right thing. But that's a bit misleading because the fullness of joy is not a situation. It's not a state of being. It is a person. The real joy of the human heart, the joy of the human spirit, is Jesus Christ. In the end, that is what the heart is made for, communion with the Lord. As St. Augustine so beautifully says, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts indeed they shall wander restless until at last they rest in you. The real paradise within which the human heart is made to rest is the Lord. 
not simply some place filled with earthly blessing and contentment, but within the life of the Lord himself. And so note then, as the Lord announces the woman, he is saying something. You will know your joy when you know the woman. How beautiful is that? This comes to a head in the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 7. The prophet comes to Ahaz, the wicked king of Judea. And the Lord says to Ahaz, who is mortally terrified that the Assyrians will run over his kingdom and depose him from his throne. But the Lord has sworn to protect Jerusalem. And so the prophet comes to this wicked king and says, the Lord says to you, Ask for a sign, you whose heart is so troubled. Ask for a sign, and the Lord will give it to you. And whatever you want, ask for something as high as the heavens, and the Lord will grant it. Ask for something deep as the depths below the earth, and the God and the Lord will grant it. But Ahaz is a true son of Adam. And so what does he say to the prophet? Far be it from me to ask for anything from the Lord. I'm okay. Think about that for a second. The Almighty has just offered you. Name whatever proof of his love and protection you desire, and he will give it. The Lord grants you that singular gift. And what do you say? I'm pretty good. I really don't think I need one. No, I don't want to be a bother. But let's be honest. There is a certain spiritual hesitation that can creep into our lives, isn't there? We long to meet the fullness of the Lord, or so we say. But as it comes close, we find that we don't want to reach out our hands. We become surprisingly timid. We do that. We've been disappointed. We think we don't deserve anything. Well, let me answer that for you. You're right, you don't. But this is not a matter of what we've earned or what we deserve. It's what the Lord desires to give us. And so just as Adam and Eve turned their backs from the possibility of being received again by the Lord, their son, Ahaz, Ruler of the people does likewise. Far be it from me to ask anything of the Lord. Think about what that really says. I don't need you. I'm satisfied and fulfilled with what I have. Yeah, and there is a certain smugness that the human heart can easily have. I'm good where I am and... That terrible thing we say, if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't change a thing. Really? Really, I wouldn't change a thing? Everything worked out so perfectly? I behaved so well, I never hurt anybody, I have literally no regrets? If my life is so wonderful, why do I need a Savior? The Lord comes so that everything changes, including me. And so the prophet, on hearing this answer, speaks, and you can hear the exasperation of the Almighty in the prophet's voice. 
These words of Isaiah are compelling, beautiful, and shocking in their directness. Is it not enough for you to weary and exhaust men? Must you also exhaust the Lord? What a statement. What a statement. Must you also push the patience of God to its very limit? And then we hear, in a sense now, the exasperation of the Lord speaking. And so the Lord himself will give you a sign, you who do not want it. Now think about that for a second. Because here we see something very important. So many say, I want to know the Lord's goodness. I want to know the Lord's love. But we only want the sign we want to see. So many of us say, I want to draw close to the Lord, but not in a way that makes me risk anything or costs me anything. And now the Lord looks at Ahaz and says, do you really think you will frustrate my will that way? In the same way that Adam and Eve do not frustrate his will, because the Lord will save them, even though they never asked for it. You know, always remember this. The Almighty is not big on consultation. Before man ever asked for salvation, the Lord has declared it will happen. Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign, and the Lord says, well, you're getting one anyway. This is the sign I will give you. Now, think about this. Ahaz didn't ask for a sign, even though it could be as high as the heavens or as deep as the depths beneath the earth. If the Lord gives a sign, will it not be a sign so high and a sign so deep? It will be a perfect sign, will it not? And so here is the sign, as high as the heavens, as deep as the depths upon which the earth itself is built. Think about what that says. Something glorious, something majestic, something compelling, and at the self-same time, something profound and solid, and enduring. The virgin shall conceive and be with child and shall call him Emmanuel. How will you know the virgin will conceive? Note, even as the Lord announces the coming of the Savior, he identifies him precisely as the son of the virgin. And what will his name be? Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. Because that is the source of Christian joy. That is the true joy for which the human heart has been made. Communion with the Lord. And so note, note what the prophet says. 
the same Lord who speaks of the woman through whom life and victory will come into the world now tells us who that woman will be. She will be virgin and she will be mother. To the glory of virginity will be joined the joy of motherhood. How marvelous is that? Note, the sign is not the child, and the sign is not just the woman. The sign is the woman who is a virgin who is now with child. One cannot see the child without seeing the mother. How will we know he who is our joy? We will know him as the son of the woman. How absolutely beautiful is that? The scriptures cannot be more clear. This is the sign, as exalted as the heavens themselves, as enduring, solid, and strong as the foundations of the very world. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. The longings of the human heart will be satisfied in and through the virgin, who is with child and bears a son into the world. How many live their lives searching for contentment, peace, and joy without knowing what it is or where it is found? How regularly, we mentioned this last night, do we ourselves in moments of crisis or frustration stretch out our hand to that which cannot really satisfy us? to that which cannot strengthen or sustain us, and all too often to that which promises the escape of a moment, the happiness of a moment, and in the end gives us years or a lifetime worth of pain. Man doesn't know where happiness is found unless the Lord show him cause of our joy, to find the joy of communion with the Lord, you have to know who the Lord is and where he is to be found. And so note what the Lord does from the very beginning, the woman, and now the virgin, who will also be mother. It doesn't stop here. Let's turn our attention several hundred years later to a very, very familiar passage from the beginning of the Gospel of St. Luke. You all know the story. On the one hand, one can say it takes place in the town of Nazareth. But that's not really where the story takes place. The location of this story is not Nazareth. The location of this story is the fullness of time. Because as St. Paul writes, in the fullness of time. Think about that for a minute, that curious expression. 
when time has become full, when time is ripe, when the universe and all things, when history reaches the moment of fruition. There's that word again, fruit. God sent his son, born of a woman. And so at that very point where time is full, Gabriel comes to Nazareth. And on entering, he says, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. And as we noted last night, that greeting is not merely, Hello, how are you doing? There is a note of joyful proclamation about it. In fact, some translations will even render it, Rejoice, O favored one or favored woman. The Lord is with you. This is not mere information. There is an element of glad tidings here. Tidings that should move the heart and the spirit to joyfulness, to the act of rejoicing. And why? Because the Lord is with you. And so there is the news of the joy of the nearness of the Lord. This nearness with which this woman, this virgin, is favored. And as she wonders about this greeting, you know, and just as an aside, think about this for a second. Did you notice that Mary is not bothered by Gabriel at all? Usually when an angel appears, folks are frightened, folks are terrified, folks are overwhelmed. And Mary's not bothered by Gabriel in the least. It's almost as if she's used to this. What troubles her is what he says. Not that an angel has spoken, but what is said. In the greatness of its wonder in the hidden beauty that is suddenly revealed to her, a moment where now the truth of herself is revealed to her by heaven. That's intrinsically disorienting, intrinsically frightening even when it's wonderful because it's unexpected and it's new and everything becomes different in that moment. Note that the word of joy troubles her. And she wonders about it. Real joy, the joy of the gospel, does have a troubling dimension to it. Not because it's off-putting, not because it's threatening, but because it goes so far beyond what we know. Because it goes so far beyond what we've ever felt before. Because it changes how we know ourselves and everything about life becomes different because of it. Of course, that's troubling. Even for Mary, especially for Mary. And here now, into this life disturbed by joy. Think about that for a second. A life disturbed by joy. A life, not a sad life, 
Not a frustrated life, a holy, saintly life, suddenly troubled by an entrance of joy beyond what it had known before, beyond what it could know on its own unless heaven share it. And then Gabriel says, and the fruit of this greeting, the real gift of the Lord being with you, Oh, is that he will be with you indeed. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And we do not consider the beauty and the power of that statement enough. In all those long years since Adam and Eve fell from life to death in the garden. The world has needed a savior, has it not? In all those long years of the Lord preparing the way, he taught his people to wait for a savior, did he not? And did anybody know his name? No. The world was waiting for a stranger, a savior it didn't know. It didn't know what to call him. And this is not by accident. Note how Isaiah speaks about the virgin birth and later will speak about the suffering he will endure for us. He will speak of that day when death is no more and is overcome. He practically gives us the biography. David the king will speak of him as being begotten before the day star and reigning at the hand of his father, and neither of them know his name. Now, if the Lord could have told Isaiah the virgin birth, he could have also told him his name, couldn't he? And note that the name, the name of the one who is desired is unknown until now. And for the very first time, as Gabriel speaks to Mary, the saving name of Jesus is heard on earth. And the universe now knows its Savior because Mary knows. The name is not announced across the heavens. The name is not given to all of Israel at once. The name is given to the world when it is given to Mary. And at that moment, only Mary knows the name. The secret that has been kept in heaven has now been revealed on earth to Mary. And it is entrusted to her. She is the first to receive the name, the first to honor the name, the first to pray in the name. And why? The name is so great that only sinless ears that never hungered for a negative word about somebody else receive it first. The name is so mighty that only sinless lips that have never cursed another in anger or allowed a deceitful word to pass over them are the first to pronounce it. 
the name is so full of goodness that only a heart that never harbored resentment has room enough for that name when it first comes to us. And every time you have ever said that name, okay, prayerfully, or let's be honest, angrily sometimes, you have only said it because you received it from Mary. Without Mary, you don't know the name of the Savior. No one who bears the name Christian does. Without Mary, the world doesn't know the name of the Savior because God gives that name to Mary. And Mary gives it to you. Cause of our joy. Without her, you don't even know his name. Without her, I don't know who he is. Gabriel doesn't announce the name of Jesus to everybody. He gives it to Mary. And what does he say? You shall name him Jesus. There is no full knowing of the one who is the joy of all nations without knowing her. In fact, in the end, whether one acknowledges the role of Our Lady or not, it doesn't change the fundamental truth. If anyone ever has the name of Jesus on his or her lips, it was given him by Mary and not from any other source. Note how beautiful that is. Not just the Savior in his incarnation, but even the truth of his name, the news of his identity, is given to us through Mary, cause of our joy. If one would know the joy of the gospel, one must draw near to Our Lady. If one would know the Lord fully, truly, and well, one must come to Our Lady because knowledge of the Lord is inseparably caught up in knowledge of Mary. The woman through whom victory will come. The virgin who will conceive and bear a son. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Even his name is given us through her. And the upshot of all of this, going back to our friend, the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 9, we hear this every year on Christmas Eve. For a child has been born to us, a son has been given us. Again, the mother is there. And the fruit is, those who dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. And a peacefulness and a victory over the violence of this world are now born among us. Because a son has been given to us.
and a child is born for us. And note how marvelous this is. At the very beginning, as Adam and Eve flee from the garden, their children are born in a movement that leads to the grave. They are born under the shadow of death. And what does the Lord say to Eve? But in pain you shall bring forth children. Not simply in joy. Not simply in peace. But there will be a sorrow and a pain attendant on this as well. And so what was originally in the plan of God, the joy of childbirth has become a joy that is clouded, mingled with uncertainty, mingled with fear, mingled with risk, and mingled with pain. And here, at the fullness of time, the Lord announces the joy of childbirth. And this is a different kind of a joy. This birth will be without pain. This birth is a birth to life and a birth of life. This birth is a birth of freedom. But note how man and woman, when they fell, fell into a woundedness which disconnects us even from the great gift of life coming into the world. And here it is that the Lord announces a salvation that comes through life. And the Lord, too, is born to die, but not because he is guilty, but so that we might have life. And the joy of salvation here, and the joy of childbirth, joy over a child, become one. How beautiful. How beautiful here. But this idea of turning to Our Lady that we might know the Lord, this idea that we turn to her through whom joy comes into the world, that we might see the face of joy itself is vitally important. And in the words of the Psalms, depending on which version of the Bible you use, in the Douay Reims it's Psalm 79, in the New American or the RSV it's Psalm number 80, The beautiful statement, convert us, Lord, and let your face shine upon us, and we shall be saved. Turn us again to you, and let the light of your face shine upon us, and we shall be saved. And so what do we have here? We have the Lord who comes to call us to turn again to him that the light of his face might shine upon us. And for those of us who wonder which direction to turn, the Lord has already shown us the way. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel which means God is with us. And when one turns to Our Lady, what does one see? 
but the light of the face of the Lord shining upon us. This, in no small measure, is why saints like Father de Montfort insisted that the more one knows Our Lady, the more he or she will come to clearly see, recognize, and appreciate the beautiful face of Jesus Christ. That the presence of Our Lady unclouds our eyes, opens them to receive the light. It's not that Jesus isn't there, but let's be honest, we miss him frequently, don't we? The Lord is with us, but we don't know where to turn. We don't know how to turn to him. And when we do, we see but dimly. But in the presence of Our Lady, his goodness, his presence, the light of his face, shine forth with an ever greater clarity. That we who long to see him can meet him, and can know him. And this has real consequences in the world in which we live. And I would be remiss if I didn't at least mention them briefly. Consider what you hear in the world around you on a regular basis. And consider it, consider how much of it is said by men and women who claim to be Christian. And let's have no illusions. Let's not talk about the lies of a broader secular world that has rejected the Lord. Let's look at the ways those who profess to be followers of the Lord can be seduced. And how many who bear the name Christian have found ways to justify the taking of unborn lives. It's not a crime merely of the pagans. How many who bear the name Christian find creative excuses to undercut the dignity and the state of the family as the Lord intended it? How many who bear the name Christian thought it could be easily justified to separate children from their parents at the border. No one side of the aisle has a monopoly on goodness or wickedness. How many who bear the name Christian promote, teach, and support such things? All in the name of human advancement, all in the name of creating a just society, all in the name of moving toward some vaguely understood happiness and joy. How many, on seeing our Lord in the arms of Our Lady, could say such things. See why she is so important? Left to our own, we begin substituting the gospel of Jesus Christ for our political preferences, our policy preferences, 
our sense of what is convenient in our life. Left to our own, our clouded over eyes and hearts begin seeing features in the face of Jesus that are not there. And why? Because we do not have an unclouded vision. We do not have that one who can bring us to a true and full knowledge of he who is the Lord. Let your face shine on us, and we shall be saved. And the coda to that, also from the Psalms, is in your light, we shall see light. Not in the light of my troubles, not in the light of my desires, my goals, my ambitions, not in the light of my culture or in my policy preferences, but in your light, O oh Lord, the light of your face. Ours is a world that sees dimly. And because it sees dimly, it doesn't know where to turn, where to go, what to reach, or even what to believe. We do not know the face of joy. And so we do not recognize it. But note what the Lord does in giving us the Lord through Mary. He tells us where to look. He tells us with whom he can always unerringly be found. And he gives us that one who helps to open our eyes to receive the full light of his goodness. Because the face of Christ is not what I decide it should be. The face of Christ, he must show me. And so again, note then, note what happens. The Lord is in the world, and he arrives at the doorstep of Elizabeth and Zechariah. How? In Mary, with Mary through Mary, and by Mary. And one can only meet him by meeting her. And as Our Lady greets that home, the love of the Lord fills it. How beautiful that is. And in that visit, the truth of the life of their unborn son is also revealed to Elizabeth and Zechariah in a way even more profound than the message of the angel. Because here it is the presence of Jesus living in Mary that makes it known. And on the day that unborn John comes to the light in his birth, and there is wonder in the entire area not just over the miraculous pregnancy of Elizabeth, but over who this child is destined to be. Think about that for a second again. Those of you active in pro-life causes, isn't it amazing how little we speak about things like that anymore? That this child has a destiny a future, a vocation. Not just opportunities, 
but a place in the plan of God. Not just for him or his family, but the world. What a beautiful moment here. What a beautiful moment. And Zechariah, inspired at this moment, has his shut-up lips suddenly opened. And out of his heart explodes an inspired hymn of praise. And what does he say? And remember, Mary is standing right there. And who is hidden in her womb but the Lord? And what does Zechariah say? Not finally my son is born, not even thank you, God, for my child. He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has come to his people and set them free. Because he has perceived that real freedom in the presence of Jesus, hidden and alive in Mary, standing right there beside him. How beautiful is that? He has come to his people, and note how literally true that is. Because standing right there is the Lord who has come to his people. Not for condemnation, but for freedom. For the setting free of the human heart. And so here, the tongue of Zechariah is set free to announce the joy of the Lord's nearness. He has raised up for us a mighty Savior. The Savior is hidden right there from the house of David, his servant. As he promised to our fathers to set us free from our enemies, from the hands of all who hate him. He promised. Now, we haven't even got to the fact that my child is born yet. Did you see this? This is absolutely amazing because Zechariah now sees everything that is happening here has to do with the Lord who has come to us. As he promised to our fathers, to Abraham, he would set us free from the hands of our enemies, free to worship him without fear. Think about those words for a second. To pray without fear. To worship with a heart that isn't inhibited and held back. To not worry about the consequences of my living my faith would have on my job, on my children's education. Free to worship him without fear, holy and righteous in his sight. That's what he has promised, and that is what is here. Note the joy, not about the promise, but about its fulfillment. And as he says this, he sees Jesus, not physically, but he sees that the Savior is present by seeing Mary. 
Note how Mary is no obstacle to knowing Jesus. She's the way that Jesus makes himself known. He doesn't see the face of Christ with his physical eyes right now, but he sees the salvation that God has promised in the unborn child in Our Lady's womb. And he sees him not simply as a baby, but as the mighty Savior born of the house of his servant David, the one through whom the promises of God indeed are made good. Now that's knowledge of Jesus. That is knowledge of Jesus. How much greater would our preaching be, our worship be, our witness be, if we knew him like that? If we looked at the promises of the Lord, not just as things that we've learned as bits of information, but as realities that are being fulfilled even today by he who has come to us through Our Lady. And it's only at this point does the happy father turn to his son. And what does he say? And you, my child, will be called prophet of the Most High. Not you, my child, are the joy of my heart, the apple of my eye. Not you, my child, will inherit the family business. Not you, my child, are the fulfillment of my desires. You will be called prophet of the Most High. You have been given a role to play. And it is a delight that you have such a role. And I rejoice in the plan that God has marked out for you. Not in the plan that I have in my mind for you. How beautiful is this? This is the fruit of the presence of Our Lady in that house with our Lord. She was there three months. We forget that. Over those three months, look at how eyes are open. And Zechariah is silent over that time because the angel shut his mouth up. But now when the time for speaking finally happens, he has something to say. And what had been shut up and pent up within him, what had been shut up and pent up in the history of the world, even in scripture, hidden, communicated in shadow and sign, now suddenly speaks fully and clearly. And where does it speak? Right here. You, my child, shall be called prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord, and you can almost see him turning his eyes <coughs> from his newborn son to unborn Jesus. And you will go before him to prepare his way to give his people knowledge of salvation. How? By the forgiveness of their sins. Because the world that needs salvation needs to know the Savior and needs to know what salvation is. And again, there are false spiritualities around us today. There have always been. 
that want to give us some lesser, some different salvation than the salvation that the Lord has marked out for us. You will give his people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. And in the tender compassion of our God, the dawn from on high shall break upon us to shine, as we hear in the prophet Isaiah, on those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet in the way of peace. There is a reason why the church prays this prayer every single morning. And note all the beauty that is held within it. All of the beauty in this canticle of Zachary. And yet, as beautiful as it is, and we'll wrap up on this note, it is the fruit of something else. Cause of our joy. All hymns of praise in honor of Jesus Christ are the children of the original hymn of praise, which comes forth from the lips of Mary. The first praise of Jesus Christ in the New Testament is Mary's. As Elizabeth says, how is it that the mother of my Lord should be here with me? She blesses the mother, she blesses her son, and she says, blessed are you who believed that what the Lord said to you would be fulfilled. What does Mary say? My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. The first rejoicing over the presence of Jesus in the world that we have words for is here. Every single song of praise ever composed in honor of the Lord Jesus Christ flows from this one. Every song and hymn in the New Testament that honors Jesus is the fruit of this one. This is the first. Even rejoicing in the Lord comes to us first from Mary. The Spirit inspires this canticle in Our Lady. And so the Spirit gives us the first school of what it is to celebrate the presence of Jesus Christ through Mary on her lips. The Lord who is perfect, the Spirit who is mighty and powerful could have done this anyway. But he does it the best way, the greatest way, the proper way. And so she who is the one from whom we've received his name is also that one through whom we receive the gift of knowing how to praise him worthily and well. How remarkably beautiful is that? That all Christian hymns of joy flow from this one. And her hymn of praise bears fruit a short three months later on the lips of Zechariah. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. But his hymn 
follows on hers. That heart which would truly know how to praise the Lord, how to rejoice in his goodness, can do no better at all than to go to the school of the prayer and the heart of the Virgin Mary. Cause of our joy, mother of our song, the one through whom we have received his name. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.